As a veteran of plays by Connor McPherson and Martin McDonough, it wouldn't surprise you to hear that Brian Darcy James has been putting on the green, but he's taken it to a whole new level as the title character in the Broadway musical Shrek. I'm Howard Sherman, executive director of the American Theatre Wing. This is Downstage Center, and I'm pleased to welcome the very versatile Brian Darcy James. Thank you, Howard. So, obvious first question. When you get a phone call saying, would you be interested in playing a green ogre, what's your response? Well, I've told this story a couple times, but uh, the, the truth of the matter is when I got the call from my agent, I was convinced that they had it confused, that they, they, they maybe wanted to see me for Pinocchio or for Papa Bear or any other, any other role other than Shrek because I couldn't imagine how, how that could be. Um, so my first, my first reaction was confusion and because uh, I kept saying to my agent, what part? And he said, Shrek. And I said, I know, I know it's Shrek, but, but what part in Shrek? No, 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 Shrek. It's the who's on first act the with titular character. And so um, that was, that, it took a, a few minutes to sink in. And, and then uh, conversations with Jason Moore, the director, in preparing for the audition and just the general kind of outline of what was to be expected uh, kind of uh, paved the way in terms of painting the picture of what they had in mind for the character and how they would achieve the look and and uh, how the character would function, um, not only as a uh, how it appeared on stage, but just kind of where they wanted the emotional core of the, this, the character to be, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I had seen all the films, so I was familiar with, with them and was a huge fan and just really appreciated the films. So it was all very intriguing to me, but, always, but not the natural kind of... Uh, um, Sometimes when you get a call about, would you like to maybe audition for this role, and you think, oh, that's something that I would, I, I think I could really do. This was not that reaction for me. I, I didn't quite know how to enter into the the idea of playing Shrek. From the original pitch or explanation, I mean, it wasn't that that you're perhaps the only person they were talking to, but they were explaining to you what they saw. How much of what they explained originally is what ended up being on stage pretty pretty much uh, everything um they at, at the point they were talking to me they had some ideas about possible looks for the character in terms of a more literal version of things which is kind of what we we have now in terms of the prosthetics and and the the appearance of of this iconic character um they had mentioned the possibility of being more theatrical and more suggestive in ways that wouldn't necessarily be as as literal, and uh, uh, so I think what really bolstered my uh, interest and my my enthusiasm for for the idea of it was the idea of DreamWorks really wanting to kind of do it right and, and putting all of their um, all the things that they've they've done so successfully in storytelling with the movies. Um, taking great care to kind of make sure that they were translating that in the right way, in the correct way, and and, and um, diligently in terms of a theatrical version of the story. So I knew that they weren't going to be um, haphazard about it. And I, I knew Jason Moore from, from college. Uh, we went to college together, and uh, and we had been in touch over the years, just peripherally. I'd see him every now and again walking down the street. Hey, Jason, how you doing? What's going on? I've heard you're doing this so on and so forth. So uh, we never really had a, um, uh, a real close friendship or anything after, after school, but you know, just a, a nice social how do you do every once, every three years or so. So um, I remember, this is getting off tangent a little bit, but I remember seeing him about 
I don't know, about a year prior to the phone call that I got about Shrek. And I had just read that they were doing this. And by this time, they were about two years into development of this thing, about four-year evolution. So Jason was in the, in the thick of it. And I said, hey, are you directing Shrek the musical? That's fantastic. And he said, yeah, actually, it's, it's really wild. And kind of talked about all the creative design elements that Tim Hatley was working on and just kind of where they were going. It was just a really nice, casual conversation. I was doing... Uh, what was I doing at the time? I was doing Lieutenant of Inishmore at the time. And so, you know, and that was that. And so cut to this call and was really, it was really great to kind of have a conversation with this, this, this college buddy of mine and who, you know, when you, when you kind of have those experiences, you think, wow, time has really gone by, A. <laughs> and, and B, you know, we're, well, I'll speak for myself, but Jason certainly falls into this category as well. I think we're we're where we should be. You know, we're doing we're doing what You're we do. You're both doing very well. We're doing what we love to do, and and we're we're getting the chances to continue to do it, which is which is the important thing. So often, when people are playing roles that are drawn from a film, we ask the question, you know, did you go back and watch the movie? Well, you already admitted you knew all of the movies. Mm-hmm. So how do you go about making the character your own, especially when? As you say, DreamWorks wanted to be very uh, uh, faithful to what all of America and all of the world already knew. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jason said it the best, I think, when when describing what that what that challenge is. It's it's managing expectations, really, because people do know what this what this uh, iconic character is and, and the context in which Shrek lives, etc. So, uh, but f- by all accounts, you know, Janine Tesori, the composer, and David Lindsay Abair, the l- a librettist and the lyricist, they were given a wide, wide path to kind of explore a new imagined version of this because by virtue of recreating it, you, you basically have to start from scratch. If you're going to take a movie and turn it into a musical, you just, how do you do that? You can't just take the movie and put it on stage. There's uh, a few, Some have tried. Well, <laughs> but, but yeah, in, e- even in, in those attempts, you have to, you have to do... You have to translate. You have to go from French to English, or you have to you have to go from one language to the other. Otherwise, it's 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 pointless um, and probably not successful. So uh, there was there was a, a precedent set that this was not just going to be an exercise in replication. It was really a, a chance to kind of you know honor the material and also to to really imagine reimagine what the story is in a theatrical context. So that that remained a. a um, a, a big part of um, the process. And to answer your question, um, I purposefully kind of stayed away from uh, watching the movie after the audition. And again, by virtue of, of just, you know, starting from scratch, as, 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 as it were, in terms of creating a new musical, there, there, there really isn't a path that has been paved at that point. Um, there are places that the director and the creative staff want you to go in terms of like honoring what they have in mind. But in doing that, you know, there's, there was a real dialogue and real collaboration about how Shrek would, would get from point A to point B emotionally, et cetera. Um, and, and that can be said of, of Fiona and Donkey and Farquaad, et cetera. So it was a very rewarding, uh, process. I've read that on the films, they were, or the first film, they were fairly late in production, when Mike Myers got this idea to make Shrek Scottish, that mm-hmm. it wasn't working for him mm-hmm. in whatever voice he was choosing to use. So clearly that defining characteristic was was being retained. That's right. Did that – you certainly worked 
doing di- other dialects before, and we'll talk about some of those shows in a few minutes. Um, did that def- help define the character for you? Well, certainly in the, in the sense that I wasn't going to go in and, and make Shrek from Alabama. You know, it, I wasn't. <laughs> I mean, you, why mess with it? I mean, there's just no way you can do Shrek without it, without him sounding Scottish, right? And um, you know, that is an interesting story about about that that huge curveball in their production. And uh, I've heard him talk, Mike Myers talk about it in interviews, and uh, it is fascinating how that. That kind of you know last minute you know change in this character really you know defines him. I mean, I love what I love about it is that it really puts him on the outside. It makes him an other. It gives him a quality of being removed from the norm. Not that Scottish people are abnormal, but <laughs> but and not that ogres are common. Well, that's right. Exactly. How would you know what an ogre sounded like? But but that that point is is well taken because if if an ogre by virtue of being a monster or some kind of strange being um, is that then you know it, it follows that it's got us it's got to sound different it's got to look different and um, I thought that was a really interesting choice on his part to kind of make him Scottish for whatever reason so as the show is being developed and you say the emotional points the story points from the point at which you really got into you got the role and began to work on it were there changes that were made? at your suggestion or simply because you inspired something in the creative team to say let's go that way i think uh generally speaking it's not it's not necessarily a hey let's do this kind of thing i think more often than not if there's good collaboration going on with an actor and a director and a writer that whatever happens with the with the text and the material that's given to the actor whatever that whatever that um inspires in the doing of that scene and rehearsal can oftentimes uh, shed light on on things that need to be shored up or things that need more clarification um, just by virtue of what the actor brings to it. So it's not necessarily, I think it should be this line. It's more about what that that particular person is bringing to the rehearsal that day and, and giving their all to kind of flesh out this character. So um, uh, I do know that you know there were there were moments in Seattle where where there there was this song that was written called "When Words Fail," which was it's a nice little ballad that Shrek sings when he's trying to uh, muster up the courage to to uh, express his feelings to Fiona with a with a flower in hand. And you know that that song didn't exist before, and um, I don't know necessarily how how Janine and David you know came to the conclusion that that's what needed to happen and i'm not saying it was necessarily me that that made them think or feel that but you know i was the guy who was doing it at the time so whatever 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 was happening prior to that i was able to kind of you know you know receive the spoils of that in in a, in a great way so that's a really wonderful moment when you get when you get something that is born out of a collaboration or just the process of working together with someone and they say, this is something that we think we need now because of what we've all done so far. And that's, that's really what it's all about. And those, those moments are great in a new, new piece because you're really, it's, it's, a real, it's, like a, it's a real chiseling moment of, uh, on, the, on the marble and saying, okay, we're going we're gonna to chisel right here and you know, sculpt this right now. So that's, that's thrilling. From Seattle to New York, there were some changes in the show, and as you talk about the relationships and what the actors bring to it, there was a key change. A, a different actor, Daniel Breaker, is playing Donkey than who had done it in Seattle. How did that affect you in terms of having one of the key people you were playing opposite suddenly be someone else? 
Well, uh, suddenly is, is um, while it was sudden uh, in one sense, it, it, it's you know you do have you do have time to kind of rehearse, re-rehearse. And uh, Chester Gregory, who originally played the role of Donkey, did a fabulous job in Seattle, and we had a great relationship. And he's an extraordinarily talented guy. I just want to say that right now. Um, so uh, whenever there's a cast change, and, and certainly I've been in that position where I was, you know, going down the line, and whoop, oh, you're gonna, not going to be going any further with this. So hmm. I've experienced that as well. So anytime you have to deal with it, I think it's met with, um, you know, a, a professionalism and and understanding that while these things occur, it's something that happens, unfortunately, sometimes. And on the plus side, uh, um, Daniel is extraordinary as well. And and so we had some time to kind of carve out a, uh, a new relationship based on what he had to offer. And so, you know, the two things remain um, separate, but 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 equal in a way. Um, uh, and, you know, it's it's a uh, it's always a process of finding new things, and especially when you have um, something that is uh, an introduction of a new element like that is always um, can be can be difficult to swallow at first, but more often than not, hopefully for the betterment of the production, it, it can engender you know positive results. Do you guys have room to play in that show at all? Do you have are there points where you can not diverge necessarily from the script, but uh, but but from what you're doing from night to night? Yes and no. I mean, it's kind of a. It's kind of a. There are parameters, I think, um, and it's mostly in the spirit of things. It's mostly in the in the way. I can only speak to myself and Donkey. I feel that Daniel and I have, uh, uh, you know, just by virtue of our characters, we have uh, we have a dynamic that that allows for a lot of different shades of contention and, and friendship and struggle and challenge and frustration and, and delight. And all these things can kind of take place uh, to a varied degree every, every night. Um, so, so while it's not like, you know, we're going to start improvising new scenes, th- there are different kind of, you know, um, you know energies or different uh, you know, attacks we take uh, every night, you know, depending on what we get from the audience and, you know the rhythm that that we're in um it's a very you know it's, comedy is a is a very scientific thing because it's it's a game of inches you know i always say that you know if, if one thing is off it can really it can really destroy a rhythm or a joke um so you really kind of have to stay true to the rhythm of things in a comedy but within that you you, you can you can kind of renew it by by you know i don't know just by the attack i guess uh, so, so yes and no is, is the answer to that. I know that Chris Sieber, who plays Lord Farquaad, who I who I truly believe is one of our you know genius comic actors of of our time right now. He's he's extraordinary. I know that he um, worked very hard to be to be you know imaginative in terms of his his contributions to um, to the scenes. You know, not only in his character, but but things that he has to say. And there's a couple of moments every night where there there he is given the green light to kind of say, you know, fill in the blank at this moment. Um, the name of the horse that he rides in in the second act, for example, is a place where you always have to be on your toes because you know it could be plastic horse or it could be it could be Sarah Palin, it could be you know Miley Cyrus. Yeah, I mean, there's there's all kinds of options when it comes to Chris. naming the horse. Yeah, the horse's name is always uh, it was something to look forward to. Part of the appeal of Shrek and certainly the worldwide success of the films is that it plays to all ages. But 
of course, it does have the opportunity to play to children. And looking over your resume, it would seem that this is probably the show that is most likely to have had the highest number of children in an audience. What's that like for you? Well, it's, I find it to be a, a, a great uh, honor and responsibility in a, in, a, in a big way because I know that I am a part of a show that is introducing Broadway theater to a countless number of, of children who hopefully – um, a good percentage of them will be sparked by this experience and want to come again, and I know that happens to me. That happened to me. You know, I wasn't I wasn't uh, seven or eight. I was probably thirteen at the time I saw my first Broadway show. What was it? It was Dreamgirls uh-huh. at the Imperial, and uh, you know, I think if it's in your blood, that's one thing. It's it's going to happen no matter what. But just seeing a, a production of a community theater or any kind of theatrical experience that a, that a child can see that is done well. And makes them want to come back. I think is a great responsibility, and, and I, I feel really, really proud of that. Also, I'm a father of a seven year old, and and she's you know she's got wide eyes, and she's she's just digesting the world in a way that I I so I find so miraculous. And you know if I can take that experience and and understand that perhaps I'm having kind of an effect, or we're having that kind of effect on on children and young theater goers that is that's very important to me you're playing a part in which we've read and heard and seen many accounts of the elaborate makeup that goes into it but as a result you're playing the title role in a big broadway musical and if you walk out onto the street afterwards people may not even know who you are what's that like i think it's great i think it's the ultimate uh, job in a way because you 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 get to do what you have to do, and you're not defined by who you are per se. You're defined, in a sense, by what you've created with this character. A lot of it, obviously, takes takes place just just because Shrek looks the way he looks, and um, there's you know people want to see that, and so they don't necessarily get to see me, but they get to experience me and and what I have to contribute to this part. So that to me is the is is the is the best thing about it because people aren't saying, "Oh, hey, you did that." It's it's like, "Oh, you you were that," and it's kind of a question mark in a way, which which it was. It, that's what to me acting is. It's it's you know you're not you're you're not yourself. You're creating something different and unique, and disappearing in this makeup is is uh, is extraordinary because it's you know it's first of all you you learn so much about about. You know, mask work and and this tradition of kind of being, um, you know, kind of uh, anonymous in in this other being is is an extraordinary and liberating thing. So that was a wonderful experience. But it's it's the I'm avoiding the Gilligan syndrome, as I've called it. It's like <laughs> like I will I, I can walk out and I I won't be that guy who was you know Gilligan and and forever be you know perceived as such in a visual way. Um, I think one of the another great asset about doing something like this is that after it's over, if I'm you know ever allowed to do anything else, um, it will be it will be so luxurious in terms of finding something new, and it'll be kind of like being in this big green cocoon for the last year. Hmm. 
You mentioned going to see Dreamgirls when you were at least into your early teens. Were you already interested in theater at that point, yeah. or was so? I was. I started doing theater in in, uh, in I grew up in Michigan, in Mid Michigan, Saginaw, Michigan, and had a chance to do stuff in high school and and uh, junior high school and community theater. Um, but yeah, that was a that was a, a a great moment for me because I, I'd seen my parents took us to see things in the Fisher Theater in Detroit and and a lot of the big touring shows. Um, so I, I was familiar with what a, a Broadway show you know meant, but I'd never seen a show on Broadway. And I was struck by how small the theater was because these big touring houses across the country are humongous. 2,800, yeah. 3,800 seats. Palaces. Yeah. Palaces and just ornate and, you know, it's like arriving at Oz. And it was not the case. I mean, I was, I was taking in the whole experience of being in New York for the first time as well. So that is a huge kind of thing to swallow. But uh, walking into the Imperial, I was, I was, I just remember the aisles thinking, these aisles are so, so, so small you know huh. how is it that this is a broadway theater and of course you know you know when, when you when you're watching the show it, it answers all your questions about how this is a broadway show but uh that was that was an interesting kind of um observation i think that i had so when you started uh when you went to school was theater it you knew from the very moment not so much i i knew when i started studying acting at northwestern university um that's what i wanted to do for a living i i didn't know prior to that point when i when i applied to northwestern i i was going to just take advantage of the theater program and maybe do a play or a musical there if i you know if and i certainly could. a great program to have fantastic, available fantastic yeah. fantastic that's what i wanted i wanted to go to college i didn't want to go to conservatory because i wanted i didn't know what i wanted to do for a living and i and I wanted just to go have a college experience, and then the benefit of having a, an incredible program there was was just icing on the cake. As it turns out, Northwestern said you can't come to the school based on uh, how you've uh, put the cards down. We're gonna we're gonna only accept you if you enter the school of speech. Um, so it was a little kismet there because they they kind of funneled me into this little this little kind of you know road of having to join the school of speech which houses the theater department radio television and film communication studies and two other programs and the first week i was there um at the end of our indoctrination week of getting used to the school etc they said okay everyone go to your majors now and I, I didn't have a major picked at that time so i just kind of just gravitated over to the theater people because i'd been hanging out with them all week and it was kind of that's how my decision to become a to study theater was made, and 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 there there on uh, from there on I, I I really as I've said before I, I, I kind of discovered the science of acting and w what it means and breaking the skill of it and the and the set of skills that you need to have to create a character and, and be in the theater and and um, understand what it is to act. So that's what really made me think this is it. This is what I want to do. It was not an was it an immediate beeline for New York once you got out of school? Yes and no. I, I finished uh, Northwestern in 1990, and I ended up uh, moving to New York on April Fool's Day of 1991. Uh, so it took me about it took me about a year. I, I did some uh, a healthy dose of industrials in Chicago at the time, selling things like you know American Express and Advil. Um, but. Uh, uh, Anyway, I got to I got there about a year later. I was I was fueled mostly by the death of my father. In, in a way, my father died in 1990. It was a huge influence on me and, a, and an incredible man. 
and um, it was it was carpe diem really. I mm. was I, I was you know there's two options, kind of just you know fold up and 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 woe is me you know and figure that out in in that vein, which is certainly understandable. Um, and the other option was well you know time is short just what why wait, and so I just. Uh, I don't know that I would have moved to New York, actually, as soon as I did, because Chicago has such a vibrant, incredible um, professional theater community there. And I had worked, uh, I started working professionally in school. Um, In fact, I got my equity card doing a production of Hair, which was the 20th anniversary production of Hair in Chicago, which is so scary because now it's the 40th. And I'm watching (laughs) this thing like, how is that possible? Um, And that was a huge experience for me. Uh, so, so I, I dropped out of school for uh, about a year to, to play Claude in this production of uh, Hair at the, the Old Vic Theater down in uh, on Belmont. So um, I was afforded all these incredible things, you know, by going to Northwestern, a great education, um, and access into this this theater community, and getting you know professional experience right out of the gate. Um, and so I think I probably would have stuck around for for much much longer. And been content with that. Uh, so anyway, uh, that was a huge factor, I think, when my dad died. Before we went on the air, you were telling a story that sort of encapsulated coming to New York and the experience of both the glamour and the day-to-day reality <laughs> yeah. of working in the theater. Can you tell that again? Sure, yeah. I was I was saying that when I moved here, you know, I, I, I would watch religiously. I would watch the working in the theater program on uh, on, the, on the cable channel and, and get, a, get a sense of, you know, all the people that I'd always heard about, but then you could hear them talking about kind of what's happening now. You could hear them breaking things down and discussing their their path, uh, how they got places, and and how they ended up doing things. And I found that incredibly, you know, insightful, inspiring because it was such a no nonsense look at things. And one of the first Broadway plays I saw when I got here was a play called Our Country's Good, and I remember seeing this this actress named Amelia Campbell who I had seen on the television show discussing, you know, her role in it. I, I'm pretty sure she was on it. And then I saw and then I saw the show. So and I thought, oh I, I remember her from 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 the television for the cable show and was blown away by her performance um, in the play. And not long after that the Tonys were were on and, and she had been nominated for a best featured actress in the play. And so I was watching this play saying, well there's Amelia Campbell. She she she's up for a Tony Award. And I lived on the Upper East Side at the time, um, on 79th and 3rd, and uh, I or 77th actually. And um, the next day, I was I went to the laundromat to do my laundry, and there's Amelia Campbell. The day after the Tonys, you know, and uh, I I was just so struck by that. I thought, wow, <laughs> the ball, where the ball is over, and now you know she's back to real life. It was a great a great kind of wake up call as to how things work you know i mean the real life goes on and then if you're lucky enough to get invited to the ball so be it but i i was able to kind of you know walk up to her in the middle of her folding her underwear probably and say hey i was rooting for you last night and she was probably like get out of here pal get out of here i'm trying to fold my pants so your first broadway show was going in as a replacement in blood brothers yeah yeah uh, was that in the Cassidy era of Blood Brothers? It was. I was the bridge between the uh, the uh, the English cast, Con O'Neill, who was up for a Tony for his portrayal of Mickey, and um, and then I was kind of like the nexus between uh, Con O'Neill and David Cassidy, um, which was great because 
for whatever reason, David couldn't come in to the show when uh, Sean Cassidy came in. So I ended up doing the show with Sean for about two weeks. So I was uh, I was in the show for about three months, four months, and then all of a sudden I was playing this role, this leading role on Broadway for for about two weeks. And it was it was the time of my life because it was such a great role. And it just really demanded all kinds of uh, a range. You know, you play an eight-year-old kid at the beginning, and by the end of the play, you're addicted to painkillers and have a gun to your brother's head. I mean, it was it was very very dramatic, and I loved it. So that was uh, that was a great experience. Hmm. Well, we often hear actors say though that when they're a replacement in a show, they don't have the time to create. A character. They're sort of told, go here, go there, do this, do that. Did you have much opportunity, especially since you only assumed the lead role for, as you say, two weeks? Well, there's something about being an understudy that differs from being a replacement because mm. by, by just by being an understudy, your job is to basically kind of uh, kind of keep the tent from collapsing and just right. do the job that that and again it goes back to rhythm and and kind of the the the, the pattern that's been set and. Uh, so there is a certain obligation for an understudy to kind of uphold that. And and hopefully with a good stage manager, you can create your own little colors here and there. But you don't want to go in, you know, uh, you know, doing X, Y, and Z when A, B, and C are expected. Right. But to be a replacement is is um, is a different thing. So and, and, and in that regard, there you are a bit limited. Um, and I've had that experience a couple of times, you know, replacing people. But... You know the the one experience I had actually the one experience I had replacing was Norbert Leo Butts in Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, and that was I didn't care. I mean, I was so in love with that role and 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 so in love with what Norbert did that I didn't necessarily care to kind of reimagine anything. I just wanted to just kind of just keep the ball up in the air from where he left it because it was extraordinary what he did, and that show was extraordinary. And so I kind of felt like if I can just if I can get back to the place where he left it, I will be I will be happy, and I, 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 I honestly mean that because, you know, if it ain't broke, you know what I mean. <laughs> After Blood Brothers, fairly quickly you got into an original cast of a Broadway show and one that is hugely remembered by so many people, namely uh, Carousel. Mm-hmm. What was the experience of what was really an extraordinary reimagining of Carousel. Now, they'd done it in London, of course, but this was an entirely new cast. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little about the process? It was an extraordinary thing because uh, Michael Hayden, who played Billy, was the original Billy in London at the National. And uh, N- Nicholas Heitner was the director of that production. Bob Crowley was the designer. And those two men are possibly the smartest, most inspired you know, theatrical uh, you know, artists I've ever had the pleasure of working with. They're incredible. So that on on one on one hand, I can I can answer that question by saying I remember just being so fascinated by 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 Nick Heitner and and how he worked and you know I was in the ensemble and so I didn't really have a lot to do with you know the. Um, the, getting into the scene scene work at all, but you know, any time that that we were involved, we meaning the ensemble, we spent a good week and a half really carving out like real identities for our characters and uh, really becoming uh, a very very um, dimensional and important part of that show. I mean, it's all really about community and and 
and you know how how you know a consequence can affect individuals and how the community deals with that. Um, I've seen through Billy and uh, and um, oh God, help me out, Julie, Julie Jordan. Um, but that to me was was in, in thinking about it. That's what that's what I think about mostly is just being so awed by what Nick was doing and and also the the, the design is is there's so many images that are, are still in my head um, from what Bob created on that stage and the, the imagery of that production were, were, were just extraordinary to me so and on the other hand um, I met some lifelong friends that that I've it was one of those experiences that was really blessed with uh, an embarrassment of riches just you know a great group of people and a lot of people coming together in a great, great way. I, like I said, I, I, I met my wife on that show, and uh, I have some dear, dear friends from that production. And, and so that, that stands out as being kind of this big cauldron of kind of magic activity in, in my life. And uh, it was, you know, it was, it was extraordinary. Hmm. Now, we're talking a lot about musicals, so I'm going to take – a few minutes and collectively talk about plays because you have very successfully had parallel careers as a big musical star and as someone who's appeared in a number of very serious plays, seemingly all Irish plays. Um, I guess the first up of those was, was Public Enemy. Mm -hmm. which was actually written by Ken Branagh Mm -hmm. as a vehicle for himself. And in fact, until I started looking this up, I hadn't realized it had even been done over here. I'd I'd known about it. Um, Did you have to make a shift already, having done Blood Brothers and Carousel, to get people to start thinking of you as a dramatic actor? Um, I think that's always the case with someone who does primarily musicals. There, there is a, a certain amount of legwork that the individual has to do to convince uh, a director or a casting director to to uh, to think of you. Otherwise, I give full credit to Laura Richen, who was the casting director for that production of Public Enemy, who's always said that she's always found that you know people who do musicals um, are 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 just as capable, if not more, in a sense, to kind of you know facilitate the way into a, 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 a piece where you don't have to sing. Um, that may be true or maybe not. I don't know. But she, she was the one who kind of gave me the chance to audition for that show. Um, so I, I, give, I give her a lot of credit for that because that really did kind of give me the chance to, uh, to, to in New York, to do a play where people could say, oh, isn't that the guy that maybe was in Carousel or Blood Brothers? Or, um, well, at that point, that was all I'd done in mm-hmm. New York. So... Um, it was a nice time for me to kind of start building uh, that part of the the, the 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 baseline for what I wanted to kind of do um, as an actor. Hmm. Well, staying with the plays, you did a show in 2001, first at Long Wharf, then here in the city, The Good Thief, which I've read you say was probably the single most meaningful experience you've had yeah. on the stage. Yeah. Um, tell us a little about the show because I'm not sure that – most people know it, and and then why? What was so meaningful, other than that it was you on stage alone for an hour? Just a respectful correction: the oh. Long Wharf production occurred after our oh. run here in New York. My was, that's okay. It was, but it was uh, Carl Forsman directed that uh, production mm-hmm. with another actor. Um, but but the, that's the blessing of that show. There was always this this kind of um, uh, 
you know, in many iterations of it that 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 uh, took me to Los Angeles, that took me to Waterford, Ireland, in a co-production with the Red Kettle Theater Company. Uh, that we did we started off Broadway at the Jose Quintero, and then moved down to Forty Five Bleecker Street. So it was this 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 wild ride of 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 a great chance to keep doing this this great great piece written by Connor McPherson. The thing that was that was really great about that is that my wife and I went to Scotland to go see my sister who's a sketch comedian and she has a group called Schadenfreude out of Chicago and they were at the Edinburgh Festival and we went to go visit them. This is probably in 19, I don't know, 99 maybe? I don't know. Anyway, we were there and we were seeing everything we could and we had just seen, um, we just seen, oh, oh, what's the, what's the one? The first one that was on Broadway uh, my first experience seeing Jim Norton. I can't remember the name of the play. It'll come back to me. They're all in the pub. Uh, you know this, Howard. The Weir? The Weir. The Weir. So I'd just seen The Weir. My first introduction. I didn't know it was a quiz show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Five points for you. <laughs> I'm, I'm in the hole, though, about 20. Um, it was my first time seeing a Connor McPherson play. So right after that, we were in Scotland, and we had seen uh, a bill of, of three one-acts by Connor McPherson. There's like 8,000 things to see in the Edinburgh Festival. So we thought, oh, let's go see that. Let's go see a play by that playwright who did The Weir, which we enjoyed. And that was the first time I saw The Good Thief in Scotland. And uh, it, it just blew me away. Um, I don't know what it was about it. It was the writing, obviously, but it was just something about that play really just like a knife just stuck me in the heart. And about a year later, I was I was in Minneapolis doing a show with my wife. We're doing a production of uh, Into the Woods at the Ordway Theater, and I was reading in the New York Times in the you know what's coming next section um, that Carl Forsman, who I had known from his his time at a place called the the Blue Light Theater, um, and was starting his own company called the Keen Company. They'd been one year in, and they were going to do this production of a Conor McPherson play called The Good Thief. And I, I, I just I just stopped my tracks and I just I just knew it was something that I had to kind of do. It's one of the, you know, you've heard these stories about people dressing up to go in to get a part and doing you know, just crazy things, you know, just to kind of satisfy some strange burning desire inside them to to do this. Well that was what, what happened with me. And so I remember remember thinking, oh, I'm sure they've got Philip Seymour Hoffman or or I'm sure they've got someone uh, uh, some huge caliber name to kind of come in and do this because it's a one-man show um and but i said i called my manager and i said you know i want i want to see what we can do to, to find an opportunity to get in for this and um long story short is that carl says that you know carl forsman the director said that i was on his list of people that he wanted to see which i don't believe uh <laughs> but maybe he's telling the truth um and it just so happened that I was able to get the audition, and it just it just it just worked. Of course, you know we didn't know what it was or what it was going to be as we were kind of you know going down the road with it. But it was extraordinary in that it was a per- just one actor working with one director, and the intimacy of that, and the and the the real collaborative nature of that of just talking incessantly about it, and not only finding out how it's going to be done technically and memorizing the words. That's one aspect of it, but just you know really really spending a lot of time with the person whose whose job is to see objectively what they're going to do with the production and that that doesn't happen it never really happens in uh in a play because usually the director's got 16 other people to deal with and a, and, a, and a production staff to deal with so on and so forth so that to me was a, a real 
a real wonderful, uh, rich experience. Hmm. And then on top of it, you've got this extraordinary writer who I just, I absolutely adore Conor McPherson's uh, writing. It is, it is, it is poetic. It is every day. It is, is true. I mean, he speaks from the heart in this really fantastic, funny way and tragic way. It's, it's beautiful. So, um, the experience to me was 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 all those things, and it really it really um, made me feel very confident in my ability to kind of you know r- literally create a character and nothing else and tell a story and be this you know Irish thug and uh, a hapless one at that and and you know really really define something in a, in, a, in a really bold unique way that I I'd never really had that chance to do before. Well, while we're in the Irish section here, uh, Lieutenant of Inishmore, mm. again, not <laughs> you, you just said an Irish thug again, yeah. you know, what what either draws you to these or do you think now people hear, you know, Irish character and say, oh, Brian Darcy James. Well, I think there is a certain amount of that. In fact, my first feature film, I, I, I played a, a small part in, in Ghost Town with Ricky Gervais, and I was cast as Irish Eddie. Um, and Pat McCorkle, who cast me in that movie, also cast me in, in Lieutenant of Inishmore. So, you know, I think I think there's, there is a very practical, uh, uh, you know, um, aspect of it saying, oh, that guy can probably do a, a good enough uh, accent to kind of make the director and the producer feel like it was worth their time to see him. Um, but, uh, but in terms of Martin McDonough, he, he also is an extraordinary writer. His imagination and the execution of his imagination is, is extraordinary. And I'd seen, um, I'd seen, uh, maybe three or four of his plays on Broadway and was, was uh, kind of in tune with what he was doing. And, and, and so this was, uh, another, another extraordinary opportunity to work with a writer who, who is in a sense kind of you know, is in his prime and is evolving right before our eyes and is a courageous, bold, um, you know, uh, makes statements with his plays that I think um, are, are, are pretty, pretty incredible. So that was uh, another great experience. Hmm. And, and we'll acknowledge also Port Authority. Yeah, I mean, Connor McPherson again, yeah. It's 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 really an interesting subset of of your work. That it really is. I you know there there was a, there was a, I did do a play <laughs> that that maybe not is not on there at the Rattlestick called uh, the Pavilion. The Pavilion by Craig, Craig Wright's Wright. Play. Yeah, which is an, another. I, I'm I'm a big fan of Craig Wright, and um, anybody who's listening to this has a chance to see or read his plays. He's he's a, a, a true um, true um, playwright and, and a beautiful playwright. Um, and that was a, a really great experience too. And again, it, you know, every opportunity there is to kind of find a way to be something different um, is always um, is always very satisfying to me. And I think it's always helpful in terms of like sustaining a career and you know showing a different color and sending up a flare, saying, "Hey, you know what? I can do this over here. Or at least I can try to do this." And you can be the judge. Let's move from the Irish portion of our program <laughs> to um, something very interesting. Many um, musical actors talk about the fact that they spend a long time in their career um, doing the old shows and doing revivals and, you know, this show out of town, you know, this regional production and so on and so forth. And you had a really pretty extraordinary run of getting to create roles in – shows both 
well known and and still spoken of, mm-hmm. uh, even if not seen by as many. Floyd Collins, Playwrights Horizons, Titanic on Broadway, the Off Broadway Wild Party, and Sweet Smell of Success. So let's take a couple of minutes on each of those mm-hmm. because you were there at for for the creation of all of those shows. I've been spoiled that way because because I I have um those experiences and those opportunities have really um cemented my desire and my 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 well my desire to to want to do nothing but new musicals you know in in terms of musical stuff. Um it's not always been the case. I think I think the only revival I've done is The Apple Tree. Um and I got in trouble a while ago because I, I was, I was, I, I was, I was feeling a little frustrated with the idea of, a re, on a commercial level, and this is a this is a whole other conversation in terms of like why things get produced and and perhaps the perhaps you know on a cynical day you could think you could say you know they're only producing that because people know it it's a familiar handle and and it's going to sell tickets and and you know that. If you're feeling that way on a particular day, that can be enough to kind of make you not want to ever do a revival again. Um, and I, you know, in that, on those days, I, I, I've been heard to say revivals are for cowards. You know, we've got to, we've got to be, we've got to be, you know, more courageous about new work. And um, I, I've, I've, you know, stepped back a few, few feet from that statement. Um, not only because I'd be a hypocrite if I continue to say that, since I have done revival, but. Um, also, I don't think it's necessarily true. I mean, there's no there's no reason, and in fact, there should be a pursuit in in in, in uh, producing revivals just because uh, quality is quality, and and if you know if you can reinvent it or make it own oh, carousel as well, that was a revival I did. Um, See, I'm, 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 I'd be terrible in a court of law. I would just my, my <laughs> argument would be completely shut down. But anyway, getting back to your question about about original musicals, I have been spoiled. And you know, Floyd Collins. You know, you think of Adam Gettle, you think of Tina Landau, um, a, an arresting piece visually and musically, so extraordinarily unique. Um, a grim topic of a guy who gets stuck in a cave. And um, that was an, a, an incredible experience for me because uh, Tina Landau works in a way that I've never, I've never had uh, the chance to work before, and it's really kind of unparalleled. It's paralleled since then, she uses she uses a method called uh, viewpoints, uh, which is uh, um, Anne Bogart, I think, was the the woman who who uh, developed this this uh, process by which there are a certain number of viewpoints or or. Um, uh, kind of tenets you follow in terms of a physical production um, as an actor, whether it's you know following a topography on the on the ground, or if it's physical relations to to uh, to architecture or repetition of movement or gesture. Um, I'm not well versed enough to kind of give you all of them, but you're getting a sense of it. That this is a vocabulary basically that the actors will use to create a, a unique vocabulary within the production that in turn defines what that production will be um, in uh, overriding the actual content. So you have this layer of a physical um, kind of world that these actors all uh, all kind of share. Huh. So that that was, I think, a huge part of, of Floyd Collins to me in terms of working as an actor in a way that I'd never worked before. And seemingly a very different approach than one hears applied to musicals. Absolutely. And uh, I think in that in that sense, for that show, it was a great marriage of, of that of that technique, and um, 
it's funny, I just ran into a girl that I worked with on a piece by Ricky Ian Gordon that Tina directed as well, using the same viewpoints. Um, and it, it really is kind of a, a, a wildly imaginative and incredibly rewarding experience. If anyone out there who's an actor gets an experience to work on this, it, you know, you can take you can take workshops and get to know these techniques. Um, and I, I had the again the luxury of kind of having that chance to do it within the the confines of a production of a new musical. Mm-hmm. So it was uh, it was a, a really. For, as from an actor's point of view, that was a really defining experience for me. Hmm. Then you talk about you were talking about stylized physically, um, not for the actors, but certainly a highly stylized production was Titanic. Mm, indeed, um, Richard Jones, the director. <laughs> yeah. What it, it it was so cinematic yeah. in its way, and and openings and closings and comings and goings. What was what was it like working in, again, a style that didn't seem like it was a style you'd seen with musicals? Well, that was something that, that became apparent, you know, down the line. It wasn't something that I could necessarily say, oh, I see what he's doing, Richard Jones, who another wildly imaginative, unique and singular voice. And uh, I know that there were, you know, to be able to kind of, the the producers the Dodgers who allowed him to to kind of follow the vision of what he had in mind for this you know this production was uh, I think was it was a, a great a great testament to them believing in something unique and hoping for something unique which I think happened um, but you know we did a workshop of that I was lucky enough to be in the workshop of Titanic and the experiments and the, the the things that we did in that in that workshop were so crazy and wild um, just it was so so uh, avant-garde in a way hmm. that you, you I, we would all think well how could this possibly be applied to you know a scene where the captain is sitting at the, the captain's table with a bunch of you know um, millionaires you know and that's that's the scene and we're all kind of <laughs> playing it like bugs you know <laughs> i mean i mean it's an extreme example but it was a way i think for a way for richard jones to kind of just obliterate expectations of what this world was and kind of uh create a, a new a new sense of what the story could be i mean in the end it really it was a very linear development of real real people and honoring you know these people who who perished and survived on the titanic um but theatrically he had something bolder and more unique in mind and i think that was more uh visible in the design by Stuart lang who works quite quite uh, often with richard jones and and it is very operatic i think in terms of what they had in mind and they they had some some visual things that were that didn't work and were were not used but were you know definitely tried uh to make them work that were visual as you said cinematic and um there was this moment we we called ship on a stick where they had a truss i can't remember i can't remember now this was actually part of the show but it was a moment in the show where uh, a big truss that was that would come down uh on the proscenium and on on the truss would be two motorized uh basically sticks that would represent and on these sticks would be the titanic a miniature version of of the titanic and the 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 goal of the image was to see from a bird's eye point of view or from from a godly point of view this this gargantuan thing splitting in half and one half of it kind of 
like a leaf falling, you know, through the air and the other half kind of sinking. It was the descent of the Titanic to the sea floor. And it was done in this really interesting way um, that th- I can't remember if that was in the show. I don't think it was. But um, that was w- one example of what they had in mind. Because they wa- I think what Richard wanted to do was to create the, the idea, this stark, cold, unimaginative, soulless um, idea of technology that we were on the, on the brink of at that time in, in terms of its representation of this ship and, and, um, and, and contrast that with these, these beating hearts of, of human beings with, with dreams and goals and hopes and, and you know, their lives basically encapsulated in this heartless, imaginative uh, um, technology. Hmm. So that, that's, that's uh, a, little, a little reminiscence on that. <laughs> okay. Andrew Lippa's The Wild Party. Well, um, the the first thing that that comes to mind about that production was that it was uh, an extraordinarily physical production. Um, again, a group of actors that were just asked and willingly went to you know you know uh, as Nigel Tufnell would say on Spinal Tap, they went to eleven uh, <laughs> in, in every way possible, and. Uh, and it was such a physical production and a great design. And and Andrew's music, I, I just, again, you know, that image of, you know, Conor McPherson's writing kind of getting, getting, getting in you in the gut. That's how I feel about Andrew's music. It just really speaks to me. And um, that was another great experience because it was, I think it was bold and it was daring and it was, it was... Um, it was just. It was just. Uh, it was just, a, and a great collaboration, a great communal feel of, of everyone kind of doing, the, trying to achieve the same goal, which doesn't always happen. Obviously, with that show, one of the things that everyone was talking about at the time was the fact that we were in this weird place where we had two productions mm-hmm. of the Wild Party on stage in New York at the same time. What was the impact of that on? On the cast, was there – I mean, because inevitably, everybody knows people in other shows. Yes. You, you all must have known people in the other wild sure. party. So, so what was, what was the, the awareness or effect of that I can only speak from inside? From, yeah, I can only speak for myself, but I think, I think uh, it's more of a curiosity than anything. Um, it didn't have any kind of impact in terms of like, well, I hope that – I hope ours is going to be better than theirs. I mean it was it, – by that point, it was a fait accompli. You know, the, the, there were two separate things that were running on the same track, two, you know, different imaginations of this poem, this obscure poem. And, you know, it was just, it was just a question of, you know, one wanted to do it this way and the other wanted to do it that way and they both had um, support and backing to do so. So why wouldn't you? And so um, – from my point of view, was I, I, I never I never was was um, intimidated or or, or um, you know felt kind of dwarfed or shattered by the other. In fact, I, I always thought it was what's what's good for the goose is good for the gander. I mean, if if there's going to be interest in this, let's obviously I'm not thinking from from a producer's point of view because it would be hard to delineate the two if you want to sell them. But yeah, sell the package deal. See two <laughs> yeah, exactly you know, yeah. two wild parties, <laughs> the A side and, and B side, and vote. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. It could be a reality show, the wild party. <laughs> Nowadays, uh, it could. Yeah, but you know, in terms of an acting point of view, we're, we were so we were so in the middle of it. You know, you you the the only the only kind of the one story I remember is hearing someone someone <laughs> at Manhattan Theater Club at the end of the first act say, "Where's Eartha Kitt?" 
I thought Eartha Kitt was in this show. <laughs> so, you know, that, there, therein lies the confusion uh, in terms of a producer's point of view. But, um, you know, at that point, you're just, you're just digging into what your job is and just, you know, doing your eight a week. To round out the section of the new musicals, <laughs> um, Sweet Smell of Success. Mm. Um, certainly to a certain segment of the film-going audience, a revered classic. Probably not all that familiar a story for for, for most people who saw it. Um, you were playing the Tony Curtis role, yeah. Sidney Falco, not... Uh, let's say the nicest guy, certainly a morally compromised guy heading towards further and further compromise. Yeah. Um, as serious, another serious musical, as we're talking about these new musicals, we should also say none of these are fluffy. Right, right. Which is um, why Shrek has been such a wonderful thing to do in, in contrast to those. But um, tell us a little about about um sweet smell of success and and creating that character with some of that great old dialogue still interpolated from from the film yeah john guare uh his interpolation of it was i mean his 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 own kind of uh clifford odeticisms were were just you know as 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 spicy and pungent as the originals and you know again it was my second chance to work with nicholas heitner and Marvin Hamlish, the the legendary Marvin Hamlish, and Craig Carnelia, the lyricist on that show. So those are four four kind of you know you know just bastions of of, of theatrical uh, talent. And then and then of course John Lithgow, um, who who's uh, also you know in that same group. So it, it was uh, it was my first time playing a, a role that that was as you said there was a there was a template for it in terms of its uh a reference point of the the original source material and it's the first time I'd done a a movie that had been turned into a musical which as everyone knows is is quite a quite a um de rigueur these days so um I felt um I got a little taste of what that was like. I didn't feel any any inhibition or any kind of like restriction in terms of re- cre- creating a a new version of Sidney Falco. Um, I've always contended that if something's going to be reimagined theatrically, there's there's really it's it's really basically creating a new DNA strand, and the rest of the the people's perception of it, you know, referring to its original source material, you can't do anything about that anyway. So there's there's no use in kind of getting bogged down by that. So. Uh, for whatever that's in me, whatever that allows for in me to kind of have that kind of uh, attitude is is a, is a is a good thing, I suppose, in this in these circumstances. But um, you know, that was that was a great character to play because you know how do you make uh, like you said a morally compromised um, individual compelling and watchable and. That, I think, was the challenge. And in the convention of a Broadway musical, not that the show bowed to convention, you are the the moral or immoral center of the story. Mm-hmm. It's, it turns on what you choose to do. So I think, I think, yeah, it does. I think the, um, if I could beg to differ just a little bit, I okay. think, I think the, uh, the J.J. Hunsecker is the, the role that John played was the, the kind of black tar pit of of the of the story in terms of him being set in his ways, right? But there was it didn't seem like there was going to be a lot of change. Ex- exactly, not at all. You're right. right. So it does turn it does turn on Sydney's um, willingness or, or unwillingness to go along with the ride, and so so he's kind of a satellite to that to that um, 
to that kind of dark abyss. And so I, gu- I guess the, the goal would be to try to make that character, you know, want him to not go down that road. And, and, I, and you know, this is something I've never really talked about, but, but you know, there was great, there was great effort in, in trying to find that tone very early on, especially the very introduction of, of the role of Sidney in terms of how do you, how do you reimagine this in a way that's going to make people, you know, sidle up to him and feel like, okay, we can, we can follow this guy through this musical. Um, and, and, and so in a way that, that changes the character from the movie, because when you meet, when you meet Sidney Falco in the movie, you know, right off the bat, this guy is, is, um, a cookie full of arsenic. <laughs> That's right, exactly. Not necessarily morally bankrupt, but but certainly he's got a few de- deposit slips, you know, that that have yet to be cashed in, and he's out. So I think what they wanted to do is to kind of create a, a more of a dynamic shift from uh, the the tainting of my soul, if you will. So they wanted to start with me being more of an innocent. Um, and this is the way I recollect it, and you know, maybe people would differ with this version of how I see it, but that was the kind of way it kind of became you know what we ended up with so whether that was a good thing or a bad thing i don't know but it was a it was a different take on on the role so um th- therein lies the difference between the the movie and 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 the musical so that was an interesting kind of uh, example of how some things can change and you know hopefully change for the better in terms of telling a story musically so um but it was it was a it was a big responsibility for me. It was my first real kind of uh, big big role, and uh, you know the uh, the last thing I'll say about it, which is probably the most important in terms of a life experience, was becoming friends with John Lithgow and experiencing everything that we went through with that show, from uh, Chicago out of town to the, the the getting it up in New York and then the Tonys and all of that hullabaloo um, and kind of merriment was I was holding on to his 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 tail like like a little puppy dog and it was fantastic because he's the perfect guy to go through something like that because he's been there before he loves it but he's also got a nice perspective on things and he can he can kind of just say yeah this is what this is and this is what this is and uh with with an incredible sense of humor and incredible generosity for his fellow castmates an incredible leader and um and, and a dear friend of mine and 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 that was probably among many one of the one of the best things to come out of sweet smell of success now i've glossed over a few shows and we are going to have to let you go because you've got a show to do tonight <laughs> but i want to ask about just a couple of other things you did the original off-broadway production of next to normal which is a very striking piece of theater mm-hmm. and again an emotionally difficult piece of theater um, I just like to ask you about what your experience was working with that material at a time when it was clearly undergoing so much change mm-hmm. because people who saw the show at second stage and certainly people who see it now on Broadway, other than the obvious difference of, of the fact that you're now in Shrek and not in Next Normal, there were major changes in that show. And was that going on throughout the run and and how did how did that come to pass? It was going on, on throughout the run. They they took every opportunity at second stage and and uh, happily so from my point of view uh, to really really work on this 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 musical. And even after we had opened, they were making significant changes. So 
Um, it's been said before, you know, it's a testament to David Stone and Michael Greif and the, and the authors, Tom Kitt and uh, Brian Yorkey, who, you know, who, who were given the chance to kind of really, really work on it. So um, you asked about the emotional aspect of it. I mean, it was, it was one of the most harrowing things to, to kind of to have to, to endure. I don't, I don't know how Alice and Bobby and, and you know, anyone over there uh, doing it on Broadway, I don't know how they continue to do it. I mean, it's, you don't usually hear about people enduring a role. Well, it's, it's, it's you so, need endurance for it. You, you do need endurance for it. And, you know, in a lot of ways I can see, you know, it's, self, it's self-sufficient in the sense that it, as much as it takes out of you, it, it gives you as much in, in the doing of it by, by the mere execution of it because it's so... Uh, it's a Herculean task to kind of do it right and to do it emotionally, truthfully, and um, represent the story in the way that it's been written. So, you know, it was a, another extraordinarily um, rewarding experience for me, challenging in the sense that, you know, we were constantly working on it, constantly working on it. And, you know, the, the, the story with that for me personally was that, you know, we didn't know what was going to happen after the second stage. There were all kinds of possibilities of going to California, of going to Chicago, of going to D.C. They, you know, and when it became apparent that we weren't going to move, you know, every actor's um, situation is 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 such that when the show is over, you know, the show is over, and you got to find another job. And so, you know, at that point, uh, the timing of things was was an interesting timing because Shrek popped up at that time when. No one really knew what was going to be happening with Next to Normal. I think I think everyone is very confident that it was going to have a next life somewhere, um, not on Broadway, but perhaps you know another stepping stone to come back, which was all theory at the time. And so it was a question of a bird in the hand, a big green ogre bird in the hand, which is an extraordinary you know um, opportunity that had arisen for me, and the opportunity of saying, well, this could happen um, in Washington or Chicago or, or, or L.A. and after that, it could come to New York, and you know there were a lot of what ifs in that scenario. So it was it was timing. It was all timing for me in terms of my future with it or, or lack thereof. And uh, um, I just as a, as an additional little point is that by some stroke of luck, we didn't have Wednesday nights off for about eight weeks in our Shrek run in the fall, and I was able to see the opening night, uh, hmm. which was which is so fantastic uh, because I was able to see you know the changes that were made. And experienced that, and it was so bizarre. Just, just all of a sudden, I went with uh, Asa Summers, who's also was in the Next to Normal cast, second stage, and we had this experience of kind of watching this thing and seeing it. It's like watching, you know, a child, you know, ten years later, and thinking, oh, it's the same child, but they've changed so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and Bobby Spencer, who plays this role, is is fantastic and so good. And of course, Alice Ripley. Um, just the fact, just just the mere fact that she has has stayed with this show from from the very beginning and and I'm sure she probably had opportunities to explore the things like like I did and she made the choice to say you know I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to see this through um and 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 thank God she did I mean she's she's extraordinary in it and um another rewarding experience for me after discussing all of this serious work and serious musicals I want to end on at least a question that will start with people thinking I've lost my mind, but <laughs> I can't um, wait. can you tell me about your common heritage with Flipper? <laughs> Happily, yeah. My, my uncle Brian, my namesake, Brian Kelly, was the father, Porter Rick, uh, or is it Ricks? Oh my God, I'll be, I'll be excommunicated from my family. Um, 
or maybe not. Maybe it's a good thing I don't know for sure. But anyway, Brian Kelly was was the actor who was the father in uh, in the in the TV show Flipper, and was a huge role model for me because you know on, on top of that he was the executive uh, producer of Blade Runner the movie, and was uh, you know lived in Hollywood and was an actor and a producer and. You know, he had this this real life of being uh, an artist in TV and, and movies, and um, that's my connection to the big to the big dolphin. But it, you know, it, he's a fascinating guy. I could talk to you for an hour about my uncle Brian. Can you tell us if there's anything as you really got into this seriously that your uncle Brian might have told you yeah. or told you as a child yeah, about he said, the business? Don't do it, <laughs> <laughs> and don't work with fish. <laughs> He hated it. He goes, that damn fish. <laughs> it's true. I mean, it's total WC Fields. But, you know, after a while, it's like, oh, my God, please shoot me in the head if I have to do another scene with a dolphin. Huh. But, but you know, he, he was, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm putting words in his mouth in a way. I mean, I, I do remember him saying that damn fish. But uh, <laughs> I think he had a very, um, uh, I think he had a very, the love-hate relationship with the with the business that he was in, um, he was a fantastic guy. I mean, he was he was as as bold and, and as as daring and and as you know as charismatic and interesting of a person you're going to meet. So um, he was very supportive of me, and he even after I you know, defied his uh, his. Uh, <laughs> His rules of not doing it, not following his path. Um, he was always there. If I w- would do a show in L.A., he'd be there. If I was coming through L.A., I'd meet him. And he was—he uh, he means a great deal to me. I have a picture of him up in my dressing room wherever I go um, of a spaghetti western he did called "Shoot Gringo Shoot," and it's this great picture of my uncle Brian. And you know, he's just there with me, and, and uh, he's a huge reason why why I'm I'm doing what I'm doing today. One last question. I read constantly about you doing readings and workshops, and so many actors do that. Um, so the inevitable question is, how much longer do you think we're going to see you in Shrek, and is there anything on the horizon that we should be uh, expecting to see you in? Well, I, I, I know my contract is up in November, mid-November, so we're in the process of figuring out what, what would be in, you know, in, in uh, the next phase of that with an extension through January perhaps. That hasn't been um, buckled down by any means. But one thing that I can tell you that, I, that I've just done, which I'm really proud of, um, uh, is producing a television series of my experiences and travails and working in industrials. Huh. For people who don't know, industrials is basically doing corporate theater to kind of rouse the sales base to get excited about their new product launch. And oftentimes actors will, will, like I said, I did a lot of that. I've done a lot of that over the years here in New York in between gigs. It's a great way to make a living well, in between and it's, gigs. It's changing, though, because you know, no, well, corporations no one, don't have the money for no it anymore. It's not like the old days of the Millican shows that That's you hear right. about. And you, you can make tons of dough and, and sell your soul at the same time. So there is, there is a, a thing to, uh, to consider there. But anyway, this is a, an improv-based comedy. Uh, my, my brother-in-law, I mentioned my sister Kate, who's I got a group called Schadenfreude. Her husband, Sandy Marshall, and I concocted this crazy, ridiculous story of a fledgling production company that is putting on, on uh, industrials, which is basically about the clash of the corporate and the artistic. Art and commerce, boom, right, meeting right in the middle of a really weird show that represents this strange product, So whatever the product is. So we uh, decided to... We got a production company to shoot this script that we had, and it's all improv, basically. So we had a story written out, and 
we kind of just let the uh, improvers go. And uh, I'm going to see the first rough cut of it tomorrow, and hopefully we can sell this thing, and it will be uh, on television soon. So that's, that's my next goal. How great. Well, Brian. It's called Shiny People. Shiny People. Okay. <laughs> so we're all going to hope that we get a chance to see Shiny People. Yeah. In the meantime, Shrek on Broadway, Brian Darcy James, thanks for being with us today on it's Downstage It's been a real Center. pleasure, Howard. Thank you very much. I want to thank our friends at CUNY TV in partnership with the CUNY Graduate School of Journalism for their assistance in the production of Downstage Center. I also want to remind our listeners that the complete archive of Downstage Center programs, as well as all of the media work of the American Theatre Wing and our partnership with the Stage Directors and Choreographers Society, are available online, on demand, for free, from americantheaterwing.org and from iTunes. On behalf of the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thank you today for joining us for Downstage Center, and wherever you are, I hope we see you at the theater.